Go ahead and find Luke 17 with me. Luke 17, start reading with me in verse 1. Luke 17, verse 1. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung round his neck and he were cast into the sea than that that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, We have only done what was our duty. So my focus this morning is going to be the story, the little parable, I guess we could call it, in verses 7 through 10. And then we're going to get into the story that follows verse 10. But the first thing I want to show you is that this story, these verses don't come out of nowhere. This little story in verses 7 through 10 has a context. It grows out of the interaction that's just happened. So Jesus opens Luke 17 by telling his disciples basically two things. Number one give no offense, and number two, take no offense. So first, in verses 1 through 3, he talks about how easy it is to lead other people to sin and how consequential it is when we lead other people to sin. And what we profess and how we live, and especially in whether our lives match up to our professions, we are either going to cause people to see Jesus in us or we're going to cause them to stumble. So for example, if you live inconsistently with your Christian professions, People are going to notice, and they're going to say, if that's what being a Christian is all about, I want no part of it, I see no power in it, I don't see the difference it makes, they're all just a bunch of hypocrites. Jesus says that's a serious matter. And being my disciple means you assume that burden. You live with that reality that causing someone else to stumble by the way I live is a serious thing. And so give no offense. That's one, one, one responsibility we assume. The second, verse 4, is that we take no offense. He turns around and he says, I also don't want you to take offense. If somebody sins against you and they keep repenting, you must forgive them over and over and over again. You must be forgiving people. No bitterness, no rancor, no anger. So the point in both parts of Jesus' instruction is that when you follow him, basically, you are no longer your own. You don't have a right to take offense. You don't have a right to nurse grudges. And you don't have the right to give offense. You don't have a right to say, my life is my business. If someone else is offended, if someone else stumbles at what I've said or done, that's their problem, not mine. You give up that right when you start following me. Now, when the disciples hear all of this in verse 5, they cry out to Jesus, increase our faith. Now, what does that mean? I think this is what's sometimes called blame shifting. In other words, what they say is, gee, Lord, it'd be wonderful to live that way. 
But we can't. We don't have enough faith for that. Maybe if we had more, we could. It's a nice idea, but we could never actually live that way. And, and I say, I sort of blame the disciples. I don't give them much credit here because Jesus doesn't agree with them. He doesn't say in verse 6, you know, guys, you're right. You do need more faith to live this way. Actually, he says, all you need is a little modicum of faith and then just exercise that little faith you have, confident that you can do anything God tells you to do. And so in verse 6, he says, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey them. It would obey you. You don't need more faith. You just need to live in light of the faith you already have. That brings us to verse 7 where Jesus then tells a story, the gist of which is that to follow Jesus is to be a servant. A Christian, a disciple, is a servant. If we say we, we serve the Lord, as, as we often do, what else are we claiming but we are his servants? And if we are servants of Jesus, then we are no longer ours, we are his. And if we are servants of Jesus then the things Jesus says are no longer optional to us. You can't say, well, if you happen to be that kind of person, I guess you could live that way. If, you, if, you had a, if I had a different personality, I could do what Jesus said. I guess if I had more faith, I could forgive as liberally as Jesus says I, says I should. Jesus says, no, if you're mine, if you're really my servant, here is how you live. That's how we get to this little parable in verses 7 through 10. So I want us to think about what this story is about. That being a Christian is all about embracing servanthood. Now, being a Christian is more than being a servant. It's about being a child of God. It's about bearing the image of God. There's lots of wonderful pictures of being a Christian. It's more than being a servant, but it's also not less than being a servant. The story Jesus tells in verses 7 through 10 I really confronts us with this image and doesn't let us sort of wiggle out of it or water down the fact that we are servants. We are to embrace everything about servanthood. The servant in the story who does his work without thanks, Jesus makes clear, is a picture of us. This is verse 10 again. So you also, just like this servant who served his master without thanks, who just did his duty, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So what does it mean to do our duty before God? What is a servant, and how do we embrace that status in our service to Christ? Three points this morning. Number one, a servant is somebody that's settled on the fact that God owes them nothing. A servant is somebody that's settled on the fact that God owes them absolutely nothing. This is verse 7. Verse 7, again, we'll read the little story. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So it's a story of a, of a farmer who has what I imagine to be a small farm. And on this farm he has one farmhand who happens to be a servant. Not an employee, but a servant. Don't uh, sort of do a mental, mental replace there. It's a servant. And so this farmhand, this servant, goes out to work all day. And when he comes in, does the farmer say, you know, let me get you something, Mr. Servant. Would you like some iced tea? Go ahead and put your feet up. I appreciate all you're doing. He doesn't say that. 
When he comes in from working all day, the farmer says, you have some more work to do. Get me my meal. And when it's all done, the servant doesn't expect anything else from the master. Rather, the servant says, I'm just doing my job. I'm an unworthy servant. I've only done my duty. I don't need pats on the back. I don't need anybody to give me a watch when I retire. In other words, a servant is somebody who says to the master, you owe me absolutely nothing. Now, do you see why this happens? We need to understand this. First of all, this is not an employee. This is not an employee. And second of all, I think we need to talk about this sort of ancient idea of servanthood and slavery. I think one of the difficulties we have when we read the Bible and we see that word servant or slave is that we automatically read it through the grid of American slavery. That's the kind of slavery, servanthood we are most familiar with that sort of informs our imaginations. In ancient slavery, this sort of slavery being described here is much different. Uh, And I've heard preachers handle this in pretty clumsy ways before. The slavery we know something about that happened in the United States about 150 years ago was, first of all, race-based. And ancient slavery was not. And second of all, in that sort of chattel slavery in the United States, the owner owned the complete person. They were utter property of the owner. And therefore, the owner had complete power, utter power over that slave. This is not what we're talking about here. In the Bible, in the ancient world, slavery or servanthood usually has to do with what's called indentured servitude. Indentured servanthood. A servant was almost always somebody who had fallen into debt. And back in those days, they didn't have such a thing as bankruptcy. Um, you know, in bankruptcy nowadays, the government, when you declare it, the government legally dissolves your debts. And there's consequences to that, but that's the arrangement. You can declare yourself bankrupt, and the government will dissolve your debts. That's one way we handle debt. But back then, that was not a thing. If you fell into debt far greater than what you could pay, you were obliged to go into the service of your creditor until the debt was paid off, until you worked it off. Which meant your creditor owned your labor. They didn't own your person. They didn't own you as a person. They owned your work until the debt was paid off. So a creditor couldn't just do anything he wanted to you. He did own your labor, though. You couldn't work for anyone else until you were square with him. You couldn't go get another job. Your creditor owned your labor until the debt was paid off. Now, all things considered, this is a pretty good arrangement. Now, how is that? I I know it doesn't sound great, but, but you realize, and if you've read the Bible, if you read the New Testament, you know there's another option on the table for a creditor. Do you remember the story Jesus tells in Matthew 18? The creditor doesn't have to make you his servant. The creditor could just get you thrown into debtor's prison to rot there. And so to to work off your debt toward him was a much better arrangement than that. And so in Luke 17, the servant comes in. And if he's anything like most of the other servants in that day and time, he is in servitude because like most other servants, he's in debt. He owes the master. And he has no illusions that the creditor owes the servant all kinds of thanks for what he has done. The, the, the servant isn't doing the master a favor. The master is doing the servant a favor. Now, in all this business about, you know, he doesn't come and get thanks and all of that, Jesus isn't denigrating common courtesy. Thank you is still a good thing to say. What Jesus is talking about is the situation where a servant owes the master and the master owes the servant absolutely nothing. So when the servant comes in from work, he doesn't get a thank you. He only has done his duty. He has only done what his debt required. Now, are you beginning to understand where Jesus is headed in all of this? 
I'll tell you what a Christian is, and, and you really don't understand what being a Christian is until you've grasped this. This is a story about us and God. Verse 10 says so. Again, verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you are commanded by your master, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. God owes us nothing. Absolutely nothing. Does that sound a little bit harsh? It might. But the thing is, it's also true. The Bible says God created you. And so you owe him everything. Your existence, you owe to him. You wouldn't exist without him. The Bible says he holds everything together, everything and everyone together at every second. In him, all things hold together. Without him, you don't exist. Without him, you don't survive another second on earth. And we haven't even gotten into the blessings of salvation and redemption. You owe God everything. And you owe it to him to make him number one in your life. But we make all sorts of other things number one in our lives. And then we expect and even demand sometimes a good life from God. He owes us nothing except to throw us into debtor's prison. He owes us nothing. And even if we serve him, we don't deserve a parade. We have only done our duty. A Christian is somebody who has internalized that. I promise by the end of it we're going to get to happier point. But we need to start with the harsh reality. How many of us have gotten angry at God because our life wasn't going this way or that? How many of us have felt sorry for ourselves because God hasn't given us something that we wanted? How many of us have spiraled down emotionally because of the way we felt God treated us or the way we felt God failed us in some way? You realize there's an assumption underneath all that anger, all those feelings. And if you take the assumption away, the anger collapses. You know what the assumption is behind that? The assumption is we assume... God owes us a good life. But would you give me the evidence for that? The evidence that God owes you a really good life and that we get to define what that is? If you pull that assumption out and you put in there a servant attitude, we wouldn't be nearly as upset as we are. The servant is somebody who understands God owes them absolutely nothing. That's one big point in this story. Number two, the servant obeys in everything. In other words, a servant obeys without qualification, without condition. Again, it says so right in verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we were unworthy servants, we've only done our duty. We do all that we command. We were commanded as servants. Now, I want to point this out. This has sort of been an eye-opening thing to me. It's interesting that after verse 10, Luke chooses to put this story in verse 11, which I think illustrates... Something about the story we've just heard. This is verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. So we have here a story about lepers. Lepers, you understand, uh, were not just in physical pain. Yes, they had an untreatable disease, which was bad enough, but they were also social outcasts, They were legally declared so. They couldn't come near anyone. 
That's why they have to stand at a distance and yell, as they do in this story. They were used to yelling. If they ever wanted to talk to anyone who wasn't a leper, they had to stand a long way off and yell at them. They couldn't come near anybody. They had to stay a certain distance away from any town, from any traveling group. And so they shout out, Jesus, have mercy on us. Jesus, do something for us. And Jesus responds by telling them, go, show yourself to the priest. Now take note, this is easy to overlook. He doesn't heal them on the spot. He doesn't say, you're healed, now go show up to the priest. He says, go show, show, show yourself to the priests. And on the way to doing that, they were healed. But the first step they took toward the priests, they were still lepers. Now, the priests were the, the health officers of the community, among other things. They were the ones who declared somebody a leper and designated them as a social outcast legally. And they were the ones who could declare the leper clean and no longer an outcast. Again, Jesus, we're told, does not heal them first. Instead, he first gives them an order. You go show yourself to the priest. And that first step for the priest, they're all still lepers. I want you to think about what you and I might have done were we lepers, those lepers. You know, you look down and he tells you go show yourself to the priest. You look down, you're still a leper and you say, what, you want me to make a fool of myself? It's sort of like saying to a blind man, hey, here, catch this ball. You're telling me to do something that's just going to humiliate further. You'd say, I asked for you to have mercy on us, and you're sending us to the health officer in this condition? You want to make us a laughing stock? Maybe he's going to slap more sanctions on us. This is crazy. This is insulting. But they obey. The servant is somebody who obeys everything they're told. Jesus, I think, is getting that point across. When he tells them, what he tells them to do doesn't make sense. You don't just head off to the priest so that you can reconfirm you're still a leper. And so they could have said, no, Jesus, heal first, then priest. But they had to be servants in order to be cleansed. The servant is somebody who does everything, who makes no conditions, who demands no explanation, who demands no proof before I'll do what you told me to. What if the lepers just sat there and said, I'm sorry, I will not obey until I feel like I can, until I have enough faith to do that. I'll obey if you cleanse me first. What if the servant in verses 7 through 10 said, I'm sorry, Master, you won't get your dinner until I'm properly thanked for my work in the field. Servant is somebody who does everything, who makes no conditions. And besides that, are you really obeying? If you have to understand why you should obey before you'll obey, are you really doing obedience there? Are you really obeying if all your conditions are met before you'll obey? Is that really obedience? That's not obedience, that's just agreeing. If there's any conditions to your obedience, it's not obedience at all. Sort of like letting Jesus into your house and saying, Lord, this is your house now. Only thing is, you can't go in that room. If it's Jesus' house, but you're telling him where he can and can't go, it's not really his house, is it? If there's conditions attached to to it being his, it's not really his. And so if you can say, Lord, I'll obey here when it makes sense to me how this obedience benefits me. But I will not obey here because I would just be so unhappy if I did that. It wouldn't make sense to me. You're not obeying at all. You weren't even obeying in the thing you agreed to do that made sense to you. There's been no relinquishment of will. You're not a servant. God is not your master. God is just your consultant. And you'll take what he says into consideration. All you're saying is, Lord, I'd be very happy to take your advice. I'd be very happy to consider your advice, rather. You're not saying I serve you. You're not saying you're the Lord and I'm the dutiful servant. So the Bible tells us all kinds of things like this. Being God's servant means obeying his word 
and not demanding an explanation and not demanding the blessings for obedience come so that I will obey, so that it will be worth it for me to obey. And so the Bible says you must forgive the people who wrong you. And the Bible says you must keep your promises, even if they hurt you to keep. And the Bible says you must be generous with your money. The Bible says not to have sex outside of marriage and exercise sexual self-control. The Bible says all kinds of things like this. And what a servant says is not, you know, I just don't feel strong enough to do that. I don't have enough faith for that. I'll only obey when it makes sense, when it pays off. Let me get my life together. Let me get in a good place. Then I'll be your servant. Then you're not a servant. Then you're not obeying. All you're doing is just taking what God said into consideration. He's not your master. He's your consultant. A servant is somebody who has settled on this. God, you owe me nothing. And I know what I owe you. I owe you everything. And so all I do for you is I submit to your will and I do my duty toward it. Now, let me add one more thing here before we get to our last point. Um, You all know I'm not a big uh, rabbit trail guy. I try to stay pretty focused on the content. But I do want to take one, one side trip and explore something with you. I want to do this because this idea that that a servant is somebody who feels God owes them nothing, a servant is somebody who says, I'm simply doing my duty, I don't understand everything, I don't live in order to be happy, I live to do the right thing, I live to serve God. All of these ideas are quite difficult, I think, to get across today and hard for people to hear and turn a lot of people off. This is just not a very popular way to describe our relationship to God. There are so many people who, who like some things about Christianity. They like the idea of, of the love of God. They like the, the joy that sometimes described being a Christian. But when it comes to stuff about servanthood, and you serve God, and you do your duty, and, and even if it doesn't make sense to you, you obey Him, this, this is the kind of thing that, that, that turns people off. And, and I want to try to describe exactly why that is, and to sort of get an idea of what's happening in our culture. A number of years ago, there was a whole issue of Forbes magazine devoted to the question, why are we so unhappy? Why are we so unhappy? And uh, they started with a, with a premise that I think is defensible. The premise was, we are more unhappy than our ancestors were. We are much less happy than our ancestors were. And I think you can, I think you can make that, that case. Um, if you go back and you read old diaries and journals from people who lived in much harder times, if you go read old records and the way that people thought and the way that people lived, you will find that people complain far more today and are far more unhappy today than our ancestors were. All this despite the fact we are materially much better off than any of our ancestors. And so the question in the magazine was, why? Why is it that we should be happier than any other generation, but we seem to be much less happy, much less happy than any other generation? And I want to suggest one one answer to this question, a very good answer The answer is because we live in the first truly secular society. And there have been smart people that have made this case at uh, at great length. It's because we live in in the first secular society. So secularism says all we have is time and space. All we have is this life and this world. We don't know about anything else. All we know is about this, this world and this life. The modern West is the first society that has ever believed there was only one world. There was only one life. Every other society has been built on some religion or some philosophy that believed there were two worlds, there were two lives, this life and the next. Even every other religion, even the pagans had this figured out. Every other religion has always understood this life is short 
and it is difficult, and the world we live in is broken, and it is brutish, and it is hard. The next world, that's a place of beauty, that's a place of happiness, but this world is simply not, and we shouldn't expect it to be. Therefore, every society prior to ours, therefore, our job in this world is not to try to be happy, not to try to get something out of this world that it can't give us. Our job is not to be happy. Our job is to be good. Our job is to embody virtue. That's how best to live in this hard world. Our job in this world is to live in light of the world and the values of the next world, to live in light of the values of the next world, because this life is passing and that life goes on forever. Therefore, we live in light of that world that's coming. You realize prior to a couple of centuries ago, every single society that has ever existed was based on the idea basically there are two worlds, not just one. And the job we have in this world is not to be happy, but to be good. We are the first society that says there is only one world. Therefore, if you're going to be happy, it had better be here and now. You know, you only go around once this life, we say. We say you only live once. So you've got to grab for all the gusto you can. And because we expect this world to give us happiness, we are constantly disappointed that it isn't. We are much more unhappy than our much poorer ancestors because we are asking the world to give us something it simply cannot give us. Let me try to use an illustration. I want you to think of a big, beautiful mountain. You go up to the Rockies or something. Those are beautiful to look at. Is it any use cursing the mountain for being what it is? You know, if you want to appreciate a mountain, think, think, of, think of the views you could get. Think of how beautiful it looks. Think of going to the top and the fulfillment of, of hiking it. Uh, think of the coolness up there. Think of the grandeur of it. But, you know, if you wanted to, you could also get really angry at the mountain. You know, what if you're a jogger and, uh, and you're going out for a job and you come up to a mountain and you want to run seven miles, but there's no level ground to run on. And so you go up and you start kicking the mountain. And you say, what an awful mountain this is. What a terrible thing this is. Well, it's a mountain. It's kind of silly to curse it for just being what it is. What you better do is learn to appreciate for what it is, what it actually is and what it can do, rather than what it can't do. Because one of the things it can't do is give you a good jogging track, but it can do a whole lot else if you will accommodate your mind to the way it is. The question is, why are you kicking this life Why are you cursing this world because it's not making you happy? We assume this world is a place that can give us happiness. And even if we think there's another world, sometimes we just imbibe so much of our secular culture, we think we're here to be happy. The Bible says that's not what we're here for. That's not our reason for living here. Now, happiness is great if you can get it, but if that's what drives your decisions, if that's what your life is about, you're going to constantly be disillusioned and disappointed. You're kicking a mountain because it's a mountain. You're kicking the world because it's the world. We need to stop being mad at life for what it is. This life is just this life. This world is just this world. A Christian servant is somebody who has figured this out. And we're not wallowing in self-pity because we don't get to do what we want all the time. Why doesn't this world give me what I want? Well, if you're a servant, it does give you what you want. A Christian servant always just wants a place where we can serve our master, where we can do our duty regardless. So a servant obeys in anything. We are not here to be happy. We are here to be good. We are here to do our duty. Now, number three. I want us to ask finally, where do we find the heart to serve? How do we get the power to do this? This is where I think we, uh, we get a little bit happier. 
I think the story of the lepers is, is really critical to understanding the little parable of verses 7 through 10. So one of the ten lepers comes back, and what does he do? He throws himself on the ground, and what does he say? He praises God, he thanks Jesus, he throws himself on the ground. Do you know what this posture is? What, what's this the stance of? To throw yourself on the ground in front of someone and praise them and worship, worship them. This is the stance of a servant. This is the stance of obedience. You throw yourself on the ground and you're saying, I am yours. You are my master. You command me. The one grateful leper is ready to assume the role of servant in the parable. He understands the debt. He understands the logic of servanthood. He is ready to serve Jesus because he knows he owes Jesus. But I also think the leper contains a deeper understanding of the debt We owe Jesus, not just debt in general, but the kind of debt we owe Jesus. Because the debt the leper owes to Jesus isn't monetary. Jesus didn't owe him some money, didn't uh, lend him some money. It's not a debt of obligation toward Jesus. He doesn't say, well, Jesus healed me, I guess I owe him now. If he became a disciple, it's not because he can get square with Jesus. The debt he owes is one of grace, it's one of gratitude, it's one of love, not, not mere obligation. Jesus has changed this man's life in every way conceivable. He has given him back his entire life. He's taken away the pain. He's taken away the disfigurement. He's taken away the legal exclusion. He's taken away the outcast status. He's taken away having to yell at people from a distance if he wants to have a conversation with someone. He's taken away the alienation. The worship and service he's rendering to Jesus isn't in hope, oh, maybe Jesus will love and accept me. It's in gratitude for the fact that he has. Look at what it says again, verse 15. Then one of them, when he heard, one of them, when he, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. He came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet. He's not scuffling off to worship. He's not beating himself up saying, oh, I better be a better servant of Jesus. It's a kind of duty embodied in him we sometimes sing. Oh, to grace... How great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Take a look at Jesus who has cleansed you and go running to him. Throw yourself at his feet and say, I am your servant and I'm bound to you. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. John Newton, the the hymnist and poet, put it this way. Our pleasure and our duty... Though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Again, our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Our pleasure and our duty unite when we come and see Jesus. Or still another hymn that says it this way, To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and a duty into choice. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and a duty into choice. The duty we are describing here in this servitude is not a grudging obligation. It's not a a get even with Jesus, get square with Jesus so I can get him off my back. It's a debt we owe to God's grace. It's gratitude for giving us our entire life. So yes, we're more than servants toward God. We're also children. We're God's beloved. We're God's image bearers. We're lots of wonderful things. 
We're more than servants, but we're also not less than servants. We are people who have settled on the idea that God owes us nothing and I owe him everything. We have embraced servanthood. We do our duty. We obey our master because we understand a debt has been paid. And now it's to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Embracing servanthood is a matter of seeing that Jesus was broken to pieces for us so that we could be made whole. He made himself a bondservant so that we could become children of God. What do you do when you receive that sort of healing? When you, like the leper, in gratitude, run to him and fall at his feet? What do you do? You return to him and you praise God in a loud voice. You throw yourself at his feet and say, I am your servant. I, you owe me nothing and I, I owe you everything. I am your servant. What else could I be? And so maybe there's someone here this morning that realizes you've been treating Jesus, you've been treating God like your consultant. I'll take your advice, take it or leave it sort of thing. Jesus says, you're either my servant or you, or, or, or you have no relationship with me. You either see what I've done and conscript yourself into my service, into this blessed service, or you have no relationship with me whatsoever. Embracing servanthood is at the essence of what it is to be a Christian. If you would like to be one, come forward now as we stand and sing.